Welcome to the new Fixing Healthcare podcast series, Diving Deep. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Core, also host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was a CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits from his books go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website, robertperlmd.com. In the first episode of Diving Deep in 2023, I want to explore whether the current divided Congress can do anything positive for American healthcare. Then I want to discuss what the most recent healthcare numbers tell us about the coming year. And finally, I plan to return to the theme of leadership and see what more can be done to address the challenges of today. Whether you provide medical care or receive it, I promise you'll learn much from this start of the year conversation. Robbie, let's begin with politics. What are some beneficial health care laws that the new 118th Congress could actually pass despite the current bipartisan political rancor? Jeremy, let me start by talking about two actions that won't happen. Legislation like Medicare for All that some Democrats favor can't get the 60 votes needed in the Senate to pass. And raising the age of Medicare eligibility that some Republicans have said will be necessary to keep the program viable, doesn't have a chance of passage in either the House or the Senate. Often when people talk about health care, they describe what they think should be. Given the narrow margins that exist in Congress of both parties, I believe we need to talk about what can be. And that focuses the conversation on legislation that both parties have proposed and supported in the past. The first possibility are opportunities to lower drug costs. You may recall the Trump administration pushed congressional Republicans to cap drug prices, shrinking the gap between what Americans and Europeans pay for the same medication. The Biden administration, meanwhile, has rallied Democrats behind the Inflation Reduction Act, part of which allows the federal government to negotiate the cost of the most expensive medications for which there is no generic alternative. In fact, a variety of bipartisan bills have already been introduced specific to pharmaceutical products. One example is the Prescription Drug Pricing Dashboard Act. This was sponsored by Senators Collins from Maine, a Republican from Maine, and Senator Casey, a Democrat from Pennsylvania. The bill would, quote, improve transparency and help lower costs by requiring consistently updated information to be posted on the drug spending dashboards at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. I think that if Congress could pass a bill like that for Medicare patients, it could certainly go a step further and require price transparency for all medications sold in the United States. Jeremy, just as hospitals now are required by law to list the retail price of inpatient services, Congress could mandate that all pharmacies publicly report their drug prices. And this would allow patients and their doctors to compare prescription prices for the best deals before filling prescriptions. What's the second piece of legislation that already has bipartisan support? Jeremy, the second area is relative to technology. You may remember from our Coronavirus The Truth podcast 
that as our nation went on lockdown during the initial spike of COVID-19, Congress eased a variety of telemedicine restrictions with overwhelming bipartisan support. For example, both parties eagerly did away with interstate licensing laws that once prevented a doctor in, say, Chicago from doing a telehealth visit with a patient in Northwest Indiana, just a few miles away, even though these same patients could legally get in a car, drive across the border for in-person care. This was just advancing us to the 21st century, so that virtual care and in-person care after an individual drives rather than turning on their computers would be equivalent. The transition was surprisingly seamless. Patients reported almost no issues with privacy or quality. In fact, most were grateful for the added convenience and timeliness of health of the telehealth. And according to numerous studies, they rated the virtual visit as high, equal to an in-person medical care experience. And yet many states are rolling back policies that made virtual care easier to access during the pandemic. They're creating a potentially dangerous healthcare access setback. With bipartisan support, Congress could intervene by permanently easing outdated restrictions on telemedicine, rather than just extending the period for restriction easing that it, that it, that it has done recently. Such policies would make a huge difference in combating the nation's mental health crisis. Even now, most qualified therapists can't offer virtual therapy to existing patients who move to another state, or even to patients of theirs that travel temporarily to a different part of the country. Given the shortage of mental health professionals and the growing demand for their services, bipartisan support for relaxation of telehealth restrictions would benefit our nation's psychological well-being and its physical health. What about a third opportunity? Jeremy, the United States faces a projected shortage of between 17,800 and 48,000 internal and family medicine physicians by the year 2034. According to a recent Stanford-Harvard research collaboration, this shortage will take a massive toll on the health and lives of patients. This study found that adding 10 primary care doctors to a community increases the longevity of patients two and a half times more than adding an equal number of specialists. If Americans want longer lives, as well as lower healthcare costs and increased access to care, adding more primary care physicians is an essential and vital first step. Primary care physicians specialize in screening for and preventing diseases like cancer and kidney failure before these can become major problems. They also work closely with patients so that existing chronic illnesses, I'm talking diabetes or hypertension, don't turn into costly or even deadly medical crises like heart attacks or strokes. And primary care physicians help coordinate medical care so that patients don't fall through the cracks as they go from specialist to specialist. What most listeners won't realize is that last year, there were a thousand doctors who graduated from accredited medical schools, who passed all their national exams, but they weren't able to receive a residency match. And that's because there just aren't enough resident training positions in the United States available 
within the government-funded programs to accommodate all of the newly graduated physicians. Congress can fix the shortage of residency training programs with what I see as a relatively small investment and one that will yield huge returns in the years to follow. Can you estimate the cost of such a program? Let's begin with the fact that the cost of training a resident today is approximately $100,000 per year. We're going to add 1,000 extra primary care physician residency slots. That would equate to $100 million a year. And since the residency is a three-year program, what it would require would be $300 million more dollars of funding annually. This is actually less than half of 1% of the current $700 billion Medicare budget. And these dollars would be recruited many times over in the future as patients getting excellent primary care stay healthier and require fewer ER visits, require fewer hospital admissions, and require fewer interventional procedures. We'd recoup these dollars literally within a year or two of the individuals graduating. As we now know, COVID-19 disproportionately kills Americans with two or more chronic diseases. And this data has shined a bright and unflattering light on our nation's failure to prevent and our nation's failure to effectively manage patients with diabetes, hypertension, or obesity. Hiring and training more primary care physicians would begin to address this shortcoming. Bills like the Resident Physician Shortage Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Physicians for Underserved Areas Act indicate that there's interest in solutions from both sides of the aisle. As you know, Jeremy, Democrats and Republicans approach healthcare policy with different philosophical motivations. Progressives care more about broadening access to care, especially for vulnerable populations, whereas conservatives want to limit needless spending. But each of these three opportunities to address problems in healthcare today will fulfill the desires of both sides of the aisle. Lower prices for medications, fewer telemedicine restrictions, and more primary care doctors will improve healthcare for all Americans, particularly those with socioeconomic difficulties and individuals living in rural areas. And bringing American drug prices in line with other nations, offering virtual medical care, and investing in expanding the number of primary care physicians, together they'll lower the cost of medical care dramatically over the next decade. Regardless of the healthcare ideologies, and despite the political divide, congressional leaders have major opportunities to pass bipartisan policies. In doing so, that would help millions of Americans. So let's just hope that elected officials seize the moment and move forward in this upcoming congressional session. Let's shift to the numbers. I've heard you say that some of the healthcare statistics that exist as we begin 2023 have shocked you. Uh, can you give an example? Jeremy, I was on a podcast recently with a host who works in healthcare on a day-to-day -day basis. 
I posed the following question. And I'd ask you and the listening audience to think about the number that you would pick. For background, there's 330 million Americans, but we know that 30 million of them are uninsured. So at least 300 million insured Americans. Of the 300 million insured Americans, how many of them get their healthcare coverage would you estimate, and would our listeners estimate, through Medicaid? The host of the show that I was on said 1 million. The actual number is now 90 million, and it's predicted to be 100 million, or one in three insured Americans by the end of 2023. Even I, who follows healthcare closely and teaches the Affordable Care Act and its Medicaid expansion at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, I would have guessed maybe 60 million. But you add 100 million Medicaid members to 60 plus million people on Medicare, more you realize is that more than half of all Americans get their health care from the government today. Most people see a dichotomy. They see the European nations as having government-funded health care and the U.S. having essentially close to 100% private coverage. The truth is that the U.S. is over halfway to a government-funded medical system. What are the implications of those numbers, Robbie? Jeremy, the implications, they're massive. First, relative to Medicaid, the consequences will be daunting. You're a historian, and you clearly recognize that although the federal government can spend hundreds of billions more than it receives in taxes each year, states must balance their budget annually. To accomplish that amid rising Medicaid costs, state leaders only have a few choices. They can raise taxes. They can reduce spending on things like education, road maintenance, and law enforcement. Or they can restrict access to medical service. Doing any of these things, none of them will be well received. Furthermore, Medicaid recipients already struggle to find primary care doctors. And they face lengthy delays for specialty care today. As the numbers grow, access will only get worse. We know that already millions of Americans have turned to the emergency rooms as go-to locations for not just emergent care, but routine care. And that creates two life-threatening problems. For the people who go there, there's less preventive screening than they require. And rarely do they get the help they need in managing their chronic diseases. And that leads to avoidable problems like heart attacks, strokes, and cancer. And as ERs swell with non-emergent patients, those with urgent and life-threatening issues across the country are having to wait longer for evaluation and treatment. And this combination, more ER patients with preventable medical problems and unnecessary ER utilization will invariably drive our nation's healthcare expenses higher and higher. What about the implications of these numbers at the federal level? Jeremy, while economic pressures are mounting for states, the federal government is feeling the strain as well. The Medicare Trust Fund, which finances the cost of care for people over 65, it's on a pace to become insolvent by 2028. 
And with baby boomers aging into Medicare eligibility, there are 10,000 more enrollees every day. Congress passed legislation as part of the Budget Control Act of 2011 to reduce payments to doctors and hospitals whenever medical costs rise too rapidly. These cuts to Medicare spending have been reversed every year since then by an end of the year congressional funding bill. In 2023, the payments were supposed to be reduced by 5%. And most people expected Congress to once again eliminate the reduction as they've done for the past decade each year. But instead, Congress only cut the decrease in half. Now, if these cuts in what Medicare pays doctors and hospitals were to continue into the future, Medicare reimbursements would start to look like Medicaid payments, far less than what hospitals need to be viable, what physicians need for their income, and healthcare providers could start refusing Medicare patients in the future, just as they do Medicaid enrollees today. What's another worrisome statistic, Ravi? Jeremy, healthcare inflation hasn't just taken a big slice out of government funds. It's also hitting the pocketbook of people with private insurance. Since 2000, medical costs have risen each year by 4.85%, which significantly outpaces the 2.85% annual increase in the gross domestic product, or GDP. With healthcare premiums rising at a rate faster than revenue, businesses have made up the difference by transferring much of the financial burden to employees. And they've done this in the form of high deductible health plans. In 2022, despite below average healthcare inflation, US employees paid a shocking 10.4% more in out-of-pocket healthcare expenses than the year before. Already, medical costs are the number one reason for bankruptcy in the United States. And if a recession ensues in 2023, as many economists currently predict, millions more workers and their families will suffer economic hardships. And the problematic economics of medical care today can quickly become exacerbated by demands by nurses and other employees for significant pay increases and added staffing. The reality, Jeremy, is that when someone has to pay, the brunt of the increase ends up on the backs of patients. What about one final statistic? As we discussed earlier, Medicare is large and growing rapidly. It's estimated the cost of providing health care through this federal program will exceed $1 trillion by the end of this year. But what many listeners may not recognize is that individuals who turn 65 and become eligible, they have a choice of two very different options under the Medicare umbrella. The first, usually referred to as traditional Medicare, was enacted by Congress in 1965. This option uses a fee-for-service reimbursement model, one that pays doctors based on the quantity rather than the quality of the medical services they provide. In 1997, Congress created an alternative program. It's called Medicare Advantage, or MA. Unlike traditional Medicare, this option is capitated. And what capitated means is the federal government pays healthcare providers 
an annual upfront fee based on the age and health status of the enrollees. The more effectively doctors can help patients with chronic diseases avoid complications like heart attacks, cancers, or stroke, the more they can help patients stay healthier, the greater their income. And when capitation is provided at the delivery system level, by which I mean at the level of the actual clinicians in the hospitals, costs go down since there's no incentive for physicians to overtreat or overtest patients. And finally, some of the dollars saved by keeping Medicare enrollees healthier can be provided back to them through added benefits, including eyeglass coverage. However, the Medicare Advantage program comes with one downside, a big downside for enrollees. Rather than having an unlimited choice of doctors and hospitals, patients enrolled in Medicare Advantage have to obtain their care through a specific network of physicians. In the past, reduced choice was a frequent non-starter for people. However, last year, Medicare Advantage was chosen by 48% of all Medicare enrollees, and it's likely that MA will become the dominant choice of Medicare members by the end of this year. I can see how shocking this dominance of Medicare Advantage over traditional Medicare would be for the politicians who passed the original Medicare. But what else does this willingness to give up unlimited choice signify? Jeremy, I interpret the data as a major shift in what Americans value when it comes to their health care. It indicates a more active role of the patient as consumer, and it opens the door to radical changes in how health care is provided. In a previous episode of Diving Deep, we talked about the rapid entry of retail giants into medicine. Already, companies like Amazon, CVS, and Walmart have invested billions in acquiring pharmacies, medical groups, and insurance capabilities in the hopes of disrupting traditional healthcare. All these retail giants are testing capitated coverage models as ways to lower costs and improve care. And you can be certain that they won't include all doctors and all hospitals in the networks that they will be building. As choice becomes less important than convenience, affordability, and care coordination, clinicians risk becoming simply employees. And small, inefficient hospitals, many of them are likely to be forced to shut down. As Americans grow more receptive to capitation and limitations to choice, the door is being propped open for these retail giants to step in and dominate U.S. healthcare in the future. How would you connect the dots? Jeremy, healthcare inflation has exceeded GDP growth now for half a century. During much of the 20th century, the added cost could be borne by employers and by the government. At the start of the 21st century, a limit was reached and more of the expenses placed on patients and their families through higher out-of-pocket costs particularly high-deductible health plans. These current statistics tell me that Americans have reached their limit. As a nation, employers, elected officials, and American families are finding the cost of care progressively out of reach, and something will have to give, and it will have to give soon. For decades, health policy leaders have been talking about the necessity to migrate from a fee-for-service system of payment to capitation. Standing in the way has been the healthcare system itself, including insurers, doctors, hospital administrators, and drug company CEOs. 
these individuals and these organizations, they like the CURT rules and they like the CURT reimbursement methodology. And compared to these powerful healthcare incumbents, patients don't have the clout to force the system to change. Now that we're talking about the world's largest retailers, most of which have market values in the trillions, the battlefields become level. And the early indication is that when given the choice, patients are using the opportunity to talk with their feet. Assuming that this shift continues, how will it impact healthcare delivery? Jeremy, the changes will be massive. But one big shift is that healthcare will progressively become a team sport. You know, often when clinical outcomes are positive, patients credit the success to a single physician. That may have been true in the last century. And even on occasion, it's accurate today. However, most of the time in the 21st century, getting the best care requires a team of doctors and other clinicians. You may remember that in a prior episode, we talked about the opportunities we now have in the 21st century to deliver superior quality, convenient access to medical care and cost savings simultaneously. And we pointed out that accomplishing all three would rely on technology and a different method of reimbursement. Teamwork, that's the glue that holds the pieces together and it makes the whole process succeed. And similar to what we said about how Leaders must use their brain, heart, and spine differently than in the past to implement change. They'll be dependent on the same anatomy to assemble and encourage high-performing teams. And how would they begin? The first step would be for leaders to explain, using logic, the necessity of teams. They might point out that the lone physician has neither the time nor the expertise to adequately prevent, monitor, and treat all the problems that patients have. They'd note that chronic disease now accounts for 70% of medical problems and healthcare costs. Unlike in the last century when acute problems, such as pneumonia or appendicitis, were the most common medical diseases that people had, and treatment could be done by a single doctor writing a prescription or performing a procedure, superior outcomes in patients with chronic problems like diabetes and hypertension they demand frequent evaluation and intervention. Data confirm that when doctors work together and ensure that every patient obtains the preventive services needed and has their chronic diseases managed and under control, that complications like heart attacks, strokes, and cancer can be diminished by as much as 40 to 50%. How else might leaders use their brains to gain the commitment of clinicians? They can explain that if the goal is to raise quality and lower costs, the 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. five-day-a-week office can't be the sole way that healthcare is provided. That care delivery model means that two-thirds of the time, at night and on weekends, patients have no option but to go to the ER for evaluation and treatment of medical problems that could be better addressed in the doctor's office at a tenth of the cost. But of course, no individual physician can be available 24 by 7. And that's where teams become so valuable. Imagine a group of, let's say, 20 doctors, all committed to working one night or weekend day every three weeks. Together, they can provide medical advice and treatment. And it could be virtual or in person to any person who otherwise would have no choice but to go to the ER. And they can do it on behalf of every physician in the primary care group. 
You know, when we did this in the Mid-Atlantic Permanente Medical Group, and we offered this service, 70% of patient problems were resolved through a single video visit that night or weekend day. And we were able to achieve higher quality, increased patient convenience, and far lower costs than if that person drove to an emergency room. An added benefit of working in a medical group or health system that builds teams and teams that include clinicians from every discipline, including pharmacists, nurses, health educators, and physical therapists, is that this approach frees up the doctor's time for the medical care that only a physician can provide. And because these other clinicians can spend longer with patients than the doctor otherwise would, they can help individuals better manage chronic illnesses, diabetes, asthma, hypertension, obesity, and they can aid individuals with healthier lifestyle choices, smoking cessation, healthy diet, consistent exercise. And this creates what business professors talk about as virtuous cycles with healthier patients needing less medical care, freeing up clinicians to spend even more time with people who are very sick and helping everyone become healthier and in total improving people's lives and lowering the cost, increasing the affordability of medical care for individuals in our country. How might leaders use their hearts to generate enthusiasm for teams? Jeremy, in 1998, the Institute of Medicine published a castigating report documenting the frequency of patient harm from medical errors. Today, according to researchers from Johns Hopkins, over 200,000 patients die prematurely. Teamwork allows clinicians to share vital medical information through a common health record. And teamwork makes certain that patients don't fall through the cracks. You know, you may remember that in my first book, Mistreated, where we think we're getting good health care, what, we're usually wrong? I began the book with my father's death, a preventable medical error. You know, my dad had great individual doctors, but each of them worked independently. Had they worked together, the infection that took his life would never have happened. Telling stories about the harm, the lack of teamwork that generates medical error creates motivation for clinicians to give up some of their individual autonomy on behalf of the group in the pursuit of clinical excellence. What about the spine? Jeremy, when change happens quickly, and you know this from your experience in business, it's very hard on people. Sometimes individuals don't like to share the spotlight with others, and they act as though they're above everyone else. At other times when difficulties arise, people fall back on how they acted in the past, and that erodes collaboration and coordination. It's at these times that leaders need to step up and confront the problems. The conversations aren't easy, but they're essential. And if they don't happen, other team members begin to feel like they've been duped. And what you see is that performance across an entire group quickly erodes. Isn't this approach likely to encounter resistance and pushback? Jeremy, the answer is yes. But let me add that resistance and pushback are intrinsic to effective leadership. If leaders are not experiencing that, they're probably not fulfilling their roles. Leadership is the art of helping people overcome their fears, helping them to embrace changes that in the short run feel uncomfortable, but in the long run prove positive for all. And what 
we know is that when the brain, the heart, the spine, all are used differently than they often are today in ways that drive this process of change, the transformation can and does happen. Any final thoughts for the new year, Robbie? Jeremy, I see 2023 as a pivotal year. There are massive danger signs, including persistently high inflation and the possibility of a recession. There are huge threats from a divided and highly partisan Congress. And there are growing cracks and fissures in our healthcare system almost everywhere you look. At the same time, there's cause, I believe, for optimism. There are actions Congress can take in line with both parties' interests. We have the technical tools needed in healthcare to begin to reverse the crisis of chronic disease and let us once again start increasing life expectancy for Americans. And there's growing pressure to transform the broken system and the outdated culture that's left over from the past. What's needed are courage, leadership, and innovation. I'm optimistic that by applying modern technology, shifting from fee-for-service to capitation, and investing in high-performing healthcare teams, that leaders can help organizations simultaneously increase quality, improve access, and lower costs. One development last month that I believe offers massive potential was the introduction of the AI technology called ChatGPT. This application allows individuals to ask a question and obtain a relatively sophisticated answer. They actually have used ChatGPT to take the examinations that doctors are required to pass to become physicians. And without being able to access the questions or answers specifically themselves, this AI application was able to receive a passing grade on this very difficult test. But what's more interesting to me is how this form of learning, this form of deep learning functions. It uses a predictive function that anticipates what's coming next. That's how the human brain works. As doctors, what we do is we ask a question. And based upon that answer, we then ask another one. It's a predictive process. The question has a limited set of responses followed by a limited set of next questions. And we make diagnoses and provide treatment plans based upon these answers that we hear. And there's no reason to believe that at some point, this AI technology couldn't do the same. Now, make no mistake, computers can't do that reliably enough today. But don't underestimate how fast the science is evolving. If the technology, let's say, doubles in ability every two years, and that's what we've seen in the speed of computing as defined by Moore's law, then by a decade from now, a relatively short amount of time, we won't just be two or three or five times better, but 32 times better, and then 64 times better, and then 128 times better, and so forth. Not only will AI be able to answer patients' questions, but we'll be able to elevate the quality of medical care that doctors provide, and it will help every clinician to practice at the skill level of the best, and that will improve medical outcomes. It will increase patient safety, and it will diminish medical error. More on this technological breakthrough and other opportunities. Let's cover them in a future episode.
We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Fixing Healthcare is a weekly podcast posted each Tuesday night. Please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at FixingHC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's newest series, Diving Deep with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.